0: Hey everybody, this is Brett.
1: And I'm Christian.
0: And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast.
1: 1977. Time ago, in a podcast far, far away. And that's all I can sing because of copyright issues. But the dead speak. Haha, <laughs> Everybody's like, "Oh shit!" They're talking about this now. Anyway, hello everybody. Welcome back to the Gilda Films podcast. It feels like it has been a long while. That or my perception of time is super, super off right now. But uh, as always, hi, I'm Christian. We're here to talk about which picture was best. The year we're going to be covering is 1977, which is a big year for the Oscars because it was the 50th Academy Awards. Yeah. And one of the biggest movies that came out of this and honestly the biggest of like, you know, one of the biggest things of all time, you got hinted at there, but we'll get to that. Um, it's kind of amazing, though. This is the 50th Academy Awards, and we're up to 94 this next year, I guess. So we're almost to 100. Wow. But anyway, uh, here's Brett. Hello, Brett. Hello, hello. Hello. And with us today, we got a special guest star. You heard him last when we talked about The Godfather back in 1972, which was one of the last year's episodes. But welcome back to Anthony. Hello.
2: Hi, thank you for having me back. It's good to be back without a uh, racial stereotype attached to me. <laughs> oh my. <God. laughs>
1: well, okay, so like the theme for this year was Christian Picks, his favorites, and Godfather Part 2 it'll happen eventually,
2: but
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anthony, you're like you're like a big fan of the 70s, so you're here. Yeah. Plus, it was, it was another way to get me to uh, get you to watch Star Wars, I guess. Uh, yeah, reluctantly, I did. again we'll talk about it but uh yeah take it away brett with some of your normal spiel
0: yeah well well, first of all this being the 50th academy awards we just talked about the 75th like two episodes ago was that something you planned or was that completely random when you're going through and picking these
1: me oh no again they're christian picks his favorites okay perfect awesome (laughs) yeah i know if i okay and honestly if i would have thought about it better i would have lined up some anniversary years but whatever (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's fair. Um, But yeah, 1977, interesting year for the Oscars. Best Picture that year went to Annie Hall, um, romantic comedy. I mean, really one of the only comedies, straightforward comedies to win Best Picture. Uh, Best Director went to the director of that film, Woody Allen, who was not present. He does not like going to award shows. So actually King Vidor presented and accepted on his behalf. Best Actress, also from Annie Hall, went to Diane Keaton. Uh, best actor went to Richard Dreyfuss for The Goodbye Girl, another film we'll talk about. And best supporting actress went to Vanessa Redgrave for Julia. And her her speech was pretty interesting. She, uh, the Jewish Defense League, was outside, kind of protesting the ceremony, and she addressed that and um, whatnot, and uh, basically talked about Zionism and things like that. And received a lot of boos, but also a lot of applause. And then Patty Chayefsky came and presented later, and like addressed her speech and said you know, you're not that important and, and whatnot. So uh, yeah, lots of, so back and forth there. Best supporting actor went to Jason Robards, also for Julia. Um, he was also not there, but he was the fourth actor at the time to win back-to-back Oscars. And so I didn't have time to look. I don't know how many times the two supporting uh, winners have gone to the same film. I don't I don't know how often that's happened, but my guess would be not very much at all. Um, the most wins this year actually went to Star Wars, the big technical achievements. It officially won six, but technically won seven, um, uh, because it also did win like a special award. And then the most nominations we actually went to Julia and the turning point with 11 And the turning point tied with the color purple, which we've also talked about for the most nominations to date at a single uh Oscar ceremony without getting a win. And so um kind of on the wrong side of history for that film. This was hosted by Bob Hope for his 19th time and his final time hosting the Oscars. Uh, And really, I I don't know, Christian, if you saw, if they did anything special for like the 50th anniversary, I didn't see a whole lot, just what I read through, but there was a controversial performance of the song, You Light Up My Life, with children who were implied to be deaf uh, signing the lyrics. And then later on, they found out these kids weren't actually deaf and most of their signing was actually inaccurate. So I wish uh, I could have
1: seen it. I should have, I should have, I should have looked for it. Yeah. It's the I, most
2: messed up thing I've ever heard. I yeah. just couldn't believe it. When I read that, I was like, wh- why bother at that point? Why even have it?
0: Yeah, exactly. I, from what I understand, like some people saw it and like, people who actually knew like ASL and were like, this doesn't seem right to me. And they found out that, no, these kids were not actually deaf and like, did not. We're like just learning sign language. So not a good look there. Um, perhaps more of a better look four out of the five best picture nominees were centered on strong women. Um, uh, you, you, in some ways you can make a case for all five in, in some ways. So yeah, um, But this did have decent ratings, 39.73 million viewers. Once again, as we always say, a number they would love to have today. Um, Yeah, still pretty popular at that time.
1: Also, the uh, supporting actor, actress thing that you're talking about. Okay, so you can, if, if somebody correct me, who's ever listening out there, but also Streetcar Named Desire and From Here to Eternity both did both supporting wins.
0: It's only three out of I, 93 there years. might
1: be more but this list here doesn't tell me that yeah That makes sense
0: very nice awesome well let's go ahead and dive into some of these best picture nominees this was of course a year of five so we got five films to talk about today and anthony is going to kick us off with our first film here
2: okay Richard Dreyfuss goes from being drenched in an underwater shark tank to drenched in a dirty New York City phone booth, I'm not sure which is worse, in this reluctant love story between a starving artist and the single mother of a perfect child. Although it feels somewhat dated in its stereotypes of homosexuality and $200 a month rent in Manhattan, this screwball comedy succeeds in the chemistry and warmth between the actors and Neil Simon's incredible dialogue. This is The Goodbye Girl. I was actually super impressed with how much I like this movie. My dad has been on my ass to watch some Neil Simon uh, stuff. I never got around to it. And I sort of understood why um, he's been recommending this. And he keeps saying, seems like old times, these films I should see. Uh, This was, hit me, it was kind of like a perfect wheelhouse movie for me um, because it has a sort of modern 1970s feel. But uh, it did, I could easily see like Cary Grant, you know, cast in this, in, in a 1940s version or something. So, it, I don't know, to me, it had like a more classic feel. And uh, I loved it. I fell in love with the character. I fell in love with all the characters. I thought they were great.
1: Um, yeah, same feeling, honestly. I've seen this before many times. I love Richard Dreyfus in this a lot. Marsha Mason's good. Uh, Quinn Cummings is also really good. But it's funny, too, because you don't expect, like, what, we have two nominees here for Best Picture that are comedies, honestly. And Neil Simon, mm-hmm. you should get into more of his stuff, because I think you would like it. If you like this, yeah. As also, this is a musical, and there's, like, one good song from it, which I shared with Brett. Uh, I don't know. It's a good song. But, uh, yeah, now we can beat up on Brett, because we both really like this movie, Anthony and I. And I don't think Brett did, but let's hear about it from him
0: liked it but i'm definitely not quite as enthusiastic i think as as the two of you are um yeah neil simon must have been a big deal because i'm looking as always i always have imdb pulled up with the movie we're talking about and the poster here, the top of it in big letters says thank you neil simon for making us laugh about falling in love again and so uh obviously pretty big deal as a screenwriter
1: um i, I play playwriter, too yeah yeah true yeah
0: um, and he had, he received like three Oscar nominations in the seventies. So, um, especially during this time, you know, he was definitely a big deal, uh, in the film world. Um, one, I definitely agree on the characters I really enjoyed, you know, it, it centers on those main three, um, Dreyfuss, Mason and Cummings. And I really, I loved all three of them. I thought they all had their own really nice qualities and they were fleshed out. And I think that was the biggest strength of the movie and the performance for the most part, um, You know, Dreyfus, I I don't know if he would be my best actor choice, but I don't know. I'd have to see more, but I I can definitely see why they would pinpoint him for that award because I think he is um, doing some cool things here and playing a really interesting character. Marsha Mason is interesting to me because I, I I texted Christian this, but... The first 10 minutes of her performance, I was not into it. I was like, no, this is actually kind of awful. It is so over the top. She's like screaming and, and crying and yelling. And I'm like, oh, don't do this whole movie. Luckily, she doesn't. She like calms down a little bit. Her character calms down. And, you know, I thought from then on, she was really fantastic. I think she was actually, for most of the movie, the best performance for me personally. Um, so she's still one that I would recommend. Just didn't feel that first 10 minutes. Um, and Quinn Cummings is so charming is pretty much everything you'd want from a child performance of this caliber and, and the character that was written for her. Um, and so no complaints there. I think for me, what, what brings it down just a notch is that in a lot of times it just felt like it, it was nothing different than a typical romantic comedy for me. You know, I, these two people don't like each other inevitably fall in love and whatnot and I really, the ending fumbled a little bit for me because you I don't, don't know like the whole
1: phone booth with the rain. It's beautiful.
0: I like that, but it also didn't leave it. the thing that is it. It didn't leave much of the imagination. I and this is getting very nitpicky, but and spoiler alert: like if you want to watch it first, turn this off for like the next I don't know minute or something. But you know he he says. Uh, make sure to what do you say? Like, make sure to change my guitar streams for me, or or something like that. And then she's like, "He left his guitar. He left his guitar. He's coming back." If she hadn't said that, it it just would have left it open to the audience to know, like, he left his guitar. He's coming back. You know, I, I wish they would have just let us like absorb that a little bit rather than like letting us know extremely loudly that oh, he's coming back. And you know, and so and it's, I get it. That's very nitpicky, but. I think it would have been a little bit stronger in that sense.
2: I actually agree with that. I was hoping that it was going to end even more ambiguous than that. Because when he was, uh, you know, when he was packing his things and she sort of came to this acceptance, like, oh, well, you know, if he comes back, he comes back. But if he doesn't, like, we'll be okay. If it ended right there, I would have loved it. I would have thought that would have been an even better ending. Actually, I, I totally agree with you. And Dreyfus was a little over the top. You know, like, I, I think it was the most most things broken by a drunk man in a movie like that scene where he was drunk he hit everything it was just ridiculous that I she I think um Mason was the was the best uh best actress in the film best best person in the film uh other than the daughter of course it just had this like I don't know I think I got swept up in it I think maybe that's like the best way to put it and maybe that's why i keep being told to watch neil Simon things is because it sort of has this like capra-esque like oh mm-hmm. the world is great kind of uh, you know thing you just see, the- it's
1: just one of those feel good things too like you watch it and you don't have to really super super think about anything it's like you're left with oh okay that was really good that was nice i feel good yeah
0: especially yeah. in the 70s you know pretty right. period of cinema so
1: Um, I also want to say that, like, Marsha Mason, back when uh, the Oscars were going on this past year, I ended up watching, I think, every actress acceptance speech. But she showed up, it felt like to me, a bunch of times in the 1970s. So, like, to finally get to rewatch this, and also I got to see Cinderella Liberty this past year. She's an interesting actress that I don't think anybody talks about enough, because she kind of, I don't know, she was around more so I think for me in the 70s that's how I know her but now I know her from TV appearances because I couldn't tell you other than this Cinderella Liberty and the rest is all TV appearances Mm -hmm. like she's good she's on Grace and Frankie which I didn't even realize that was her um a few weeks ago I was watching the middle on like the Hallmark channel and she appears in that as Patricia Heaton's mother and I'm like oh hey it's Marsha Mason so she I don't know she needs some more credit and Richard Dreyfuss, he's just gone. He keeps his Oscar in the refrigerator. I think that that's weird.
2: <laughs> she was like, I think she had four nominations. Yeah,
1: because yeah, right it felt there. like every time I went through the 70s, it's like, and Masha Mason for this, and Masha Mason for this. It's like, oh, okay, cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, seriously, like, a, like an eight-year period where she got nominated four times. That's pretty impressive.
1: And I forgot to tell you two this, but also um, there was a reunion of this movie last year through i'm pretty sure it's called stars in the house and it's on youtube but you can easily access it because i watched a little bit of it last year just because i was interested because i like the movie that's cool you had
2: seen this before
1: yeah okay yeah Yeah. oh i will say that also the the, uh, richard the third stuff that goes on in this and anthony mentioned it with like gay richard the third it's weird and i like how (laughs) even dreyfus thinks it's super cringy because it's like (laughs) experimental theater I don't understand it. And I like how it's played for laughs and like everything that anything ever talks about it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I think it's worth the Oscar just for that one scene where they're trying to talk to him backstage and he doesn't say anything like that to me was the best acting in the whole film. And he didn't say a word, you know, because he's this character who doesn't shut up and he's just like totally embarrassed I, that, that I think, was the best part of his performance. And I felt like it's my heart broke for him in that scene.
0: Yeah, I agree. I really loved that scene. I loved his performance in that scene. I, I also love the scene, and this is probably this, the scene that, like you said, kind of swept me up the most when uh, Marsha Mason is at her job where she's working for, like, I can't remember which which car company it was. Um, and Subaru or something? Yeah, uh, yeah, Subaru or something, yeah. And... Um, you know, he shows up with Quinn Cummings and like they surprise her, and then he's leaving. He's like, Oh, I'm gonna buy a ton of cars from you because of that woman right there. And that was a really nice scene, too.
1: Yeah, I will say also that uh, when I was thinking about the ending, you can always buy another guitar, girl. You better watch out. <laughs> <laughs> he maybe you won't come back.
0: Maybe that's where the ambiguity comes in a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, Um, Anthony, do you want to go over the Oscars at this one and that it was nominated for?
2: Sure, I can do that. One Oscar win for Best Actor, Richard Dreyfuss. Four additional nominations for Best Picture, Best Actress, Marsha Mason, Supporting Actress, uh, Cummings, and Original Screenplay.
0: Nice, so pretty nice showing. Once again, I think, like you mentioned, Christian, just kind of surprising that, maybe not surprising considering what dominated the 70s so often but that a movie like this and annie hall getting nominated in the same year it's kind of cool
1: also my little fun fact i want to bring up is richard Dreyfuss became the youngest actor winner and yeah and it wouldn't be surpassed until another movie we talked about um two episodes ago with adrian brody for the Pianist.
2: Who was just a month
1: shy of his 30th i think i
2: read that like he had just beat him out as a 30 wow. year old yeah
0: that's interesting because he just—I don't know—he does not look that young to me in this movie. So that
1: that stat was a little bit
0: surprising to me. But
1: but then you and then you go watch Close Encounters, which we'll talk about soon. But it is such a baby face. <laughs> it's the beard.
0: Yeah, that must be it. Awesome. Any further thoughts on the Goodbye Girl before we move on to our next film?
1: Other than our next film is the Laugh Riot of the Century.
0: Absolutely. Uh, so I have our next film and it is Julia. And so this is one of those movies that, that the the title character is actually not the main character in the movie. Uh, the main character here is actually Lillian Hellman, um, our author, playwright, who um, has a friend that she kind of grew up with named Julia. This is supposed to be based on a section of Hellman's book, Pentimento, where Um, she had a friendship with a woman named Julia who was involved with, um, basically fighting against the Nazis, um, during world war II. And so Jane Fonda does play Hellman here. Vanessa Redgrave plays Julia and they haven't seen each other for a while. Hellman is kind of having some struggles as a writer. Um, she commonly seeks advice from Dashiell Hammett, who's played by Jason Robards, um, who has actually kind of retired and they live together and, um, uh have romance and whatnot on this isolated beach house. Uh but one day, you know, Julia is invited to this conference in Moscow and, you know, during World War II. And she receives a notice from this guy, Johan, who's played by Maximilian Schell, that Julia has called upon Lillian to help her transport funds for an anti-Nazi cause into Berlin. And so get swept up in this kind of dangerous but also kind of low-key mission. Um, where she basically goes on this train and follows these really succinct directions to try to get into Berlin without any trouble, which is um, troublesome because Hellman is Jewish. And so um, definitely a lot of risk there, even more so than there would be otherwise. And so it kind of follows her as she goes on this journey without giving being giving much information at all kind of going on her own and some people who pop up here and there in a very mysterious ways while also trying to somehow reconnect with her long lost friend, Julia. Um, And so this one, I, I kind of, this one is kind of on the same level of the goodbye girl for me. I like it, but I definitely don't love it. I just appreciate a movie like this. That is sort of like a, I, I don't know if I wouldn't say a spy movie, but it kind of feels like a spy, like espionage type movie, but it's very low key and realistic. Like there's not a whole lot of violence here, which I don't have a problem with, but like not a whole lot of action. It's not going over the top with anything, um, which at times could make it a little bit dull. I will admit at times it you know, I wanted it to move along a little bit quicker, but I did enjoy seeing um, Lillian Hellman, quote unquote, go through this journey and try to get there and try to avoid the dangers that might pop up here and there. Um, I actually think the one, the best performance in the movie is the one that didn't win an Oscar. And that's Jane Fonda in the lead role. I felt like just seeing her, the kind of fear that she displayed oftentimes very quietly because that's all she could do was pretty effective. Uh, but I do think, you know, red Grave is good. I, I Robards is fine. I, I really don't understand that Oscar win, especially since he had just won a year previously. I I don't see the urgency to give him something like this for which he's in here for maybe five minutes. Um, Definitely take some faults with that. But this is also a post of the goodbye girl, very dark. Um, and, you know, it ends on a very somber note. Um, so, yeah, this is definitely kind of the downer of the year.
1: Um, it's fine. Uh, Meryl Streep is in it. Perks there. <laughs> uh, if I would have introduced this, I would have done a whole spiel about Julie and Julia. yeah (laughs) but no it's a fine movie I've seen it before I didn't remember it so it was nice to rewatch it I'm not like the biggest fan of it at all I think it's very boring if I'm just going to use a simple word um a lot of it's fine everything from the train sequence onward to when Julia uh and Lillian meet in that cafe is really good and then the cafe sequence is phenomenal, I think. Redgrave, that's where Redgrave gives her performance win, honestly, in that scene alone. Um, and Fonda is really good. I will agree with that. The rest of it, I just, I don't know. There was a lot for me not to care about. It's a nice looking movie, too. Uh, the Robards win is, he's non-existent. It's a It's felt like a blink and you'll miss it. He spoke to her what felt like once. And the Maximilian von Schell nomination that's somehow here too. It's like, okay. But yeah, I don't know. I would never see this again. And I'm a huge Fonda fan. Like I went through a whole 2019 watching like all of her movies and I avoided this one. So it's saying something, but I don't know. If you're a completist, fine. Also, it's really interesting that the title character is not the lead. I don't know. It's a cool, fun fact, but yeah. I felt the same. I was like, yeah.
2: I mean, you know, I had a lot of expectations because I actually, the director, Fred Cinnamon, I mean, I just can't believe that the same person who directed this directed High Noon. Yeah. You know, and The Men with Brando is one of my, like, all-time favorite movies. So it's just, it's strange that, like, he was attached to this project because it seemed so unlike the other things that he's done. It kind of reminded me a little bit of, like, Cabaret, in a sense of like this this sort of like pre, the, the coming of the Nazis, but it also just in terms of the way the film looked, it looked like it had this sort of like dirtiness to the actual print of the film. Um, I love Jason Robards in everything. So yeah, I don't think he probably should have won an Oscar for this, but eh, what the hell gave it to him? He's Jason Robards, I love him in everything. Um, I wish there was more of a backstory between the characters. That's where I kept coming back to is like, yes, I understand that they were like, they had the special bond and everything, but like, I just didn't see enough of it that to justify these like incredible favors (laughs) that Julia was asking. It was like, she just shows up in her life. Oh, can you take my kid? Like I haven't seen you in whatever, how many years And like, I liked the flashbacks. I did like those that when they would keep flashing back to them as kids or whatever. Um, But substance wise, it just like, it sort of lacked for me. And uh, there was some nice tension on the train with the hat and and that whole thing with the box, which I was like, why are you leaving the box here? Like, keep the box with you at all times, you know? Um, But, so there was nice tension there, but overall it, it, it did fall flat for me. I have to say, I agree with Christian there.
1: It almost made made me sad during like that cafe sequence when they first meet up after years and years that Julia doesn't obviously want to make a commotion and cause suspicion or whatever. But my God, this is like this is one of your dearest friends who has been looking for you and worrying about you. You could give her a hug. You could show her some <laughs> sort of damn emotion. Like suddenly you're one day you're in the hospital, the next day you're like no 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 she's fine she's fine she's not here but she's fine. And yeah, it's like. <laughs> Girl, come on, give her a hug, give her a kiss, give her something.
2: <laughs> if they said, like, when when they were, like, uh, when she called the hospital and they were, like, we did not have anybody by that name, if the movie would have went in a direction where, like, either it was Jane Fonda just looking for her the whole time <laughs> or, like, she was dead the whole time, I would have probably been really into it. But the way it went was just so slow, you know? And, and I think I saw, like... The, seems to be a trend in 1970s is like you know not making movies on the holocaust necessarily but just like sort of the pre-nazism was like a a big topic and it can be done well but i just didn't feel like it was here
1: i was also thinking too that the writer of this alvin Sargent, who also wrote ordinary people and i guess spider-man too (laughs) Um, it also it leaves that ambiguity feeling of is this a true story or not is this just a made-up thing that Lillian did because Julia doesn't really have a last name there's nothing really to know about Julia and yet she claimed that this was oh yeah this all took place yeah okay girl
0: yeah and I was reading there there were a lot of conversations about that Um, like Mary McCarthy um, like an adversary of uh, Hellman had said that this was, this was not true, you know, this, and there, there were like legal battles happening up until Hellman died and a lot of suspicion about how much truth there was to this and, um, and whatnot. Um, cause I think even in the book, I don't think Julia has a last name. So definitely suspicious, but I, I really do agree with the point of, I wish their bond had been shown a little bit stronger. Uh, cause I agree. Like I, Maybe that's more of the flashbacks. Maybe that's, um, you know, some other, something more to the cafe scene. Uh, but like you said, Christian, I I did really enjoy I do think that sequence from the train to their meeting is the best segment of the film. The stuff with Hellman as a writer, I, I, I really wasn't into that. I think that just kind of takes away, uh, it's, you know, from the story a little bit. It's not as important. And I also do like the scene kind of afterwards where she's at watching Hamlet and other things are going on there. Um, but I saw that Roger Ebert said that, you know, the problem with the movie was that it was from Hellman's point of view. And although I, I do enjoy Fonda here, I can't help but wonder, you know, what would it look like if it was from the point of view or Julia or, or someone else more involved with that? Would it be a better movie? Um, I think that's an interesting point. So, uh, but this one did pretty well on Oscar night. It did get three Oscar wins, like we mentioned, supporting actress for Redgrave and then supporting actor for Robards. It also won adapted screenplay. Um, and it did get eight additional nominations for Best Picture, Director, uh, Fonda for Actress, Shell for Supporting Actor, who once again is like barely in the movie. Um, cinematography, which I, I really enjoyed the opening and closing shots of the movie. They're the same shot but I thought that was really well done costume design film editing and original score as well. So a lot of nominations that night. All right. Any further thoughts on Julia before our next movie?
1: This movie really showed me that Meryl Streep, Meryl Streep was going to be our finest actress. (laughs) There you go. All right,
0: Christian, do you want to take us away on our next one?
1: Yes, let me tell you a story about a boy named George and how one movie ruined his entire career from ever directing anything else ever again. (laughs) Okay, so our next film is Star Wars. Like the first one, the OG, one that would retroactively be named A New Hope. But for this, we're going to be just saying Star Wars because some of us got the chance to see this Like the OG cut, which, wow, yeah, makes a difference. Anyway, if you don't know by now, Star Wars is about a little group of misfits, rebel alliances, who are trying to save the galaxy. And we have Luke Skywalker, who's just a simple boy from Tatooine, who gets swept up into a plot to help uh, deliver, well, to help, first of all, um, save a princess known as Leia. Oh, and Luke is played by Mark Hamill, The Princess Leia, played by the late, great Carrie Fisher and he in uh gets help from jedi master obi-wan kenobi played by sir alec guinness which as i watch this i'm like how the hell did they get alec guinness into this thing (laughs) and they in turn get help from han solo harrison ford and chewbacca played by peter mayhew may he rest in peace um but they uh There's a lot to this, okay? And you all should know this plot by now. But anyway, they go to rescue Princess Leia from Darth Vader, who is holding her up in a thing called the Death Star, which is a planet destroyer, essentially. And yeah, they have to battle him they have to get her and there's also a little thing where they have to blow the death star up which is complicated because it's a tiny little thing that they have as an entry point for their destroyers this is all taking place in space there's a bunch of droids they make the damn movie and also peter cushing is in this again how did george lucas get these people in this movie i don't get that But it is one of the most iconic films ever made. I love it. I don't have to say anything more except I love it. For a 1977 movie, it's a technical achievement. Um, It really is just like overwhelming how great this film is. You look at it. I mean, if you watch it on Disney+, Plus, more power to you. It has ugly CGI in it. But somehow find the original cut to this without the CGI stuff. And you kind of have to ask yourself, wow, George Lucas really had a good imagination and there's a lot of just really strange things in here but for 1977 we're having death stars we're having planets blowing up we're having these weird ships these weird names called the jedis what the hell is a lightsaber and yeah may the force be with us all it's a great film when it's a great film i ramble on but whatever it was a box office juggernaut okay and i'm just like I'm overwhelmed that a movie like this could even get nominated for best picture because you would not think that something like this would considering also, this was going to be a B type picture. All right. But yeah. I know you two love it, <laughs> right? Not holding, you know, a gun to anybody's head. Well, <laughs> let's hear from I, Brett first.
0: <laughs> I I do love it. I, um I, I really, if there's, uh, the movies I wish I could go back in time and see when they first premiered, this is one that, that might just top the list because it's something that parents have talked about, you know, being there during that time, seeing it, what a phenomenon it was. And I've always, not always, but I, I've held the the opinion for a while that like I, part of me, you know, wishes that the the praise that this got on such a wide level for its visual effects, I wish that had been applied to 2001 because those are the two, those are the visual effects from like, these are like the greatest all time. And that looks like it could have been made a few years ago still. But like you said, Christian for 1977, these are still just incredible. And I think, you know, if you, I I know there are folks who watch them today and and they see how outdated some of it is. And of course it was made today. It would be made with a lot of CGI. But if you try to put yourself in that time and think about what had come before and what would come after it really helps in that regard. Um, and in a lot of way, I I think one of my, some of my favorite stuff about the movie is not so much even, um, the visual effects, but like the art direction, the production design, um, and putting all that together, all the ships and the death star and, um, the rebel base and, and all that, you know, fun stuff. Um, George Lucas, interesting director. I, You know, it's it's it is funny because he's been so tied to the Star Wars saga and not a whole lot else. I mean, obviously, you got like American Graffiti and, um, you know, his first film, um, whatever, THX, whatever it's called.
1: THX 1138. 1138.
0: Yeah. Um, But I I think what works for me from George Lucas here is the world building. You know, and like I said, putting yourself there now, it's just common cultural knowledge with the Jedi R and, you know, Luke Skywalker and Ben Kenobi and all these Darth Vader, all these characters, they're common knowledge now. But like, if you think back then, and introducing all of that and kind of like opening up everybody's minds to those ideas, it's the, the world building and the storytelling is phenomenal. The dialogue, maybe not so much at times. You know, you know, George Lucas has a history, I think, of writing some some corny dialogue at times. And I, I think that's no different here. That's my one you know, flaw of the film at times. And I think it results in some performances here and there that don't always work um, like Mark Hamill. Um, but you've also got performances like Alec Guinness, who I think is pretty splendid. Uh, Harrison Ford. You know, I, I think he's great here. I, I think Han Solo and, you know, he's my favorite Star Wars character. But I think, you know, he gives him such a charisma despite being such a troublesome character at times and whatnot. And then, of course, you've got, like you said, Christian, the late great Carrie Fisher, who, you know, strong woman who makes decisions along with the men and um, fight alongside them and whatnot. And so it's it's not my favorite Star Wars film that would come, you know, uh, three years later. But um, it's still really special. Um, And and a lot of years, maybe it wouldn't be a contender for like best picture of the year for me. But in this year and what it did, absolutely. I I think it's phenomenal stuff. I tend to ramble too when I really like a movie. So apologies.
2: I I respect everything that's been said. I really do. (laughs) And it's one of those film franchises that I wish I could get into because I don't like being in the minority. That isn't, I see. I don't I have nothing really against Star Wars. It's just not my thing. And I I say that because I'm into things that no one else is into. So I get it. Like the Universal Monsters is the most nerdy, outdated franchise, but I love it. So I understand that. And I think also it's important to have grown up with star Wars, which I didn't like, I first saw this film when I was in college. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like, Oh, okay. So I guess this is what everybody like loses their mind about. And then I saw empire strikes back and that's, those are actually the only star Wars films I've seen. So of those two, I actually prefer this one, uh, to empire. Um, I know it's shocking, but I, I, like this, uh, I like the way this one moved. Uh, it, it sort of, I thought it was more visually interesting uh, during a lot of points. Granted, I saw the, uh, the one that's on Disney Plus now. I mean, they have all those animations that they've added and whatnot. Yeah. Um, I respect everything it's done, you know, like uh, visually um, f- for the, the genre. Like you said, the fact that this was a B movie or essentially going to be a B-movie and was, you know, nominated for best picture and started probably the most successful or one of the most success- successful franchises in film history, all the respect to it. I really get. And, you know, it's just, uh, I don't know. I'm not into like space and fantasy as much. Um, I'm probably the worst person to be talking about Star Wars. Like, when I told my <laughs> friends that I was going to be talking about Star Wars on a podcast, you they were like, you can't have someone more, unqualified for that position um i like those little things that see this is again <laughs> this is where like you probably know exactly what uh, those things that like in the beginning they take r2d2 they're like the sand the sand is it the sand people thing mm-hmm. is that them yeah yeah they sound like the professor egad from like luigi's mansion they make all these like little <laughs> i love
1: like oh, oh, yeah, oh yeah
0: the, the jawas
1: Oh the no, yeah. yeah the, 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 the Jawas, the, the, and then there's the Tuscan yeah, Raiders. Like, yeah.
2: And then there's like the sand people are the ones with like, the scary masks.
1: Yeah, those yeah. like the Tuscan Raiders, yeah, who play a big significant role in like the second movie, but like the second movie that's made in the 2000s. Mm. Oh yeah.
2: I mean, like that stuff's cool. I like anything like that. Um Han Solo probably is my favorite character in this film. Like it's it's a little corny but i i love it for it the scene where he's in the uh is it a cantina is that what they say it was yeah yeah and he's like uh is speaking with this whatever the hell it is that's gonna kill him and he shoots it first i kind of love that it has that like old western sort of like feel to it that scene um so movies I, i'm sorry scenes where like they played up that sort of cheese i liked a lot um yeah, I appreciate everything that it's done. Uh, it's just not my uh, not my type of genre.
1: Well, now your homework is to watch the rest of them.
2: Yeah. Um...
1: Got <laughs> your homework. It's ki- It's it's kind of amazing how this one movie. Is there's so much to talk about it, and now with the whole world building thing, as Brett said, and there's of course so much controversy about it because film Twitter, especially, will mm-hmm. not shut up about a particular one of the sequels. Yeah, like, still, yeah. Well, and you
0: you mentioned unqualified, but I I, I like that though because I this this movie is one that I think there is such a common opinion that it's nice to hear a different perspective, and like you said, someone who didn't grow up with it because I think that is a factor. You know, I I think most people who especially those who love this franchise um did grow up with that obviously and so that's a factor and like I and sometimes i I hate being part of the fandom because so there's a large quantity of it that have taken things in a bad direction and um and like Christian said just will not shut up about little nitpicky things in movies and um, I, I'm all for movie discussions but sometimes it's like come on let's move on you know and star a lot of star Wars fans don't get that so um
1: I would say that um I I don't know how I would have grown up on this because I first saw this in like 2004 when they were re-released on DVD for like the first time and then I really didn't love super super think about it until 2015 when they all started coming back again Mm. and that's yeah so it's been recent for me but i mean i've always understood and i've always known you know because i remember in third grade and spoiler alert to anybody who's never seen the empire strikes back oh no no, not third grade first uh kindergarten where somebody had a cup of little anakin and they're like that's darth vader and i didn't understand (laughs) what that meant at the time but looking back yeah somebody spoiled it for me so thanks
2: also he's probably like the coolest movie villain of oh, all time. Or yeah. you know, at least one of the most iconic movie villains of all time. See, then that's where the respect comes in. Like I could have, you know, it may not be my cup of tea, but my God, did it pave the way for like this universe that has just become Com- commonplace you know it, it's it's like every one of those characters essentially is like a household name and to know yeah. that this is the movie that started that all you can't help but feel a sense of like oh this is just classic you know and in in that way i think it's hard uh it's hard not to like it you know because i don't not like it, so it it's right. just like you're like wow this is the thing that that started it all it's like it's absolute film history you know, it's a, it's a must see. And um, it's just funny that George Lucas like (laughs) couldn't get away, you know, it was pretty much it for him, you know, (laughs) pretty much it.
0: Yeah. It is really interesting that way. But, and I, I, we haven't even mentioned yet the John Williams score, obviously. I mean, we mentioned it earlier on the podcast, but this time as I was watching, I realized my favorite pieces of that score are not like in the action sequences. It's when Luke is kind of staring out at the sands and it kind of crescendos in the, like the most slower parts of the theme. Um, and so I, the cinematography is really good in that way. I think the, the music really fits the film overall, not just the theme that we've come to know it as. And so um, it's kind of special in that way too.
1: Um, so about that score, it's it's phenomenal. Literally anything John Williams does, incredible, iconic too, of course. Yeah. But I got to see The Empire Strikes Back, which again, John Williams in concert, um, pre-pandemic. They're going to do Return of the Jedi, I believe, next year. But listening to that score in person mm-hmm. is life-changing. I cried just at the intro alone.
0: I bet. That's awesome. And it's really interesting to think, too, you know, with the intro, the title cards, we come to know them and the crawl and the ending. I, I don't know what George Lucas had planned. I don't know when they realized they were doing a sequel, but it could have ended here. And the film does provide an ending where it could have existed on its own, I think, as a movie. So that's kind of interesting, too.
2: I, I actually I would have loved to have seen this in a theater. Like these, this is one of the films that I feel is an absolute must for a theater experience. I mean, the fact that you can see it with like a live orchestra, yeah, that's pretty incredible. But just, a, just the even seeing the titles, you know, coming at you, imagining being there in 1977, it's like wow, things are different. This is something that people have never seen before. You know, it must have been so exhilarating, wasn't it? Like one of the highest grossing. Box office opening weekends. something I thought I read that or something.
0: Something I'm like
1: sure. that. I I know it beat out Jaws easily box office wise. Mm-hmm. So, but um, let's see. It only debuted in thirty two theaters like its opening weekend. Um,
2: oh
0: wow! Yeah, yeah.
1: And
0: I think it it may have ended up number one at least domestic all time because, and obviously that's not adjusting for inflation because you got Gone with the Wind, but obviously I know. E.T. would do that later on but Star Wars it was it was close at least I'm not sure of the actual numbers and stats but
1: I I think when we were watching it Toby was reading some of the fun facts and he said that it didn't open in more than like 1500 or so theaters which is like nothing. And then also today, the day that we're recording this, um, I watched a movie called Oh God with George Burns and John Denver in it. And that is the movie that for one week briefly beat Star Wars at the box office. Wow. It's just a fun fact. <laughs> but also, um, thank- I want to shout out, thank you to KB because KB sent me the link to like the OG movies. No CGI edits there, but also I got to I talked with him and he was just telling me that yeah this was like a huge deal for him especially Mm -hmm. because he got to see it original obviously but he waited in line for this and for the other two yeah
0: and I do wish Lucas wouldn't have messed with these and Mm. you know especially the newer ones like the worst the absolute worst thing is when Jabba the Hutt shows up in the new versions because. Ugh. Looks like a cartoon, and it, it is horrendous. And the fact that they put episode four, a new hope, on it—that is one of my like pet peeves because I, the the film was called Star Wars. That's what it came out as, and I'm just a pet but, peeve for that. But so. a
1: new hope appeared in like 1980 too. Yeah, 1980. I. But like the fact that it's coming out in three years after that, he yeah, that's weird. Yeah.
0: But anyway, uh Christian, do you want to go over what this won, which was a lot and what it was nominated for?
1: Yeah, and then I want to say something else about George Lucas. Oh, go for it. Okay, so yeah, directed by George Lucas, this won seven Oscars, including art direction, yeah, costume design, whoa, sound, film editing, visual effects, original score, and a special achievement award for sound effects. And it was nominated for four other things, including picture, director, supporting actor for Alec Guinness and original screenplay. Yes. Um, so two things, three things, three things I want to say. First of all, uh, this is this is parodied a lot, obviously. Um, Spaceballs. Great. Fine. The best parody of this, though, in my opinion, and everybody's going to be like, Chris, shouldn't shut up. But Family Guy does such an amazing job with this. Agree. I agree. Yes. With all three of the originals, they do such an amazing job. They literally get everything down in this film. And then of course, add the humor to it. It's amazing, I cannot believe it, but it's on Hulu, please watch. And then the second slash third thing I wanna say is, George Lucas is a very wealthy man, okay? (laughs) I wanna read this off of Wikipedia. Lucas himself was not able to predict how successful Star Wars would be. After visiting the set of Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Lucas was so sure that Close Encounters would outperform the yet-to-be-released Star Wars at the box office. Spielberg disagreed and believed Star Wars would be the bigger hit. Lucas proposed they trade 2.5% of the profit of each other's films. Spielberg took the trade and, to this day, still receives 2.5% of the profits from Star Wars. And also... Lucas foregoed his option to an extra $500,000 fee for directing this and instead obtained, wait for it, the merchandising rights and the sequel rights. Now, the fact that last year, the show The Mandalorian produced all these little baby Yodas, that counts as a Star Wars merchandising right. Mm -hmm. So X amount of years later, George Lucas is a very rich man. Because he made the right decisions.
2: Wow. That's just incredible.
0: Yeah. You talk about the box office. I bet that doesn't even hold a candle to all the merchandising. Because that continues even when there are no new movies or shows being released.
1: Yeah. And also, the merchandising for this Star Wars did not come out until, I believe, the following year.
0: Oh, that makes sense.
1: Because they, they weren't prepared for it at all. Right. So even then, the man was making coin. Wow.
0: Yeah. Uh, a final point for me: the Family Guy parody that I still like, chuckle to myself when I think about it. But there's a scene in that where like they're in the garbage chute, and Peter sees this couch, <coughs> and he's like, "Look at this couch! It's nice." And they're like running away, and he has like carrying the couch. He's like, "Go, go, 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 go! Get the couch on!" Absolutely hilarious. I agree with Christian. Check that out. I, I mean, if you really hate Family Guy, you're probably not going to like it, but
1: it is very funny so Anthony that's your homework now just go watch the family that ones
2: <laughs> okay that's not a problem I can do that
1: yeah they're like they're like an hour they're a 45 hour yeah
0: any final thoughts on Star Wars before our next movie all right well I don't know if our next discussion will be quite as enthusiastic but uh Christian I believe you have this one as well so <laughs> oh. take us away
1: all right Laugh ride of the century here. Here we go. <clears throat> this is The Turning Point, directed by Herbert Ross. Herbert Ross also directed The Goodbye Girl. Whoa. So, all right, the best way that I can do this and actually care and not bore myself, Dee Dee Rogers, who is played by the lovely Shirley MacLaine, is a former ballerina from very prestigious ballet company, And she one day encounters her old friend, Emma Jacklin, and Bancroft on tour in, where is it? Who cares? Oklahoma City, fine. Uh, Emma then takes Dee Dee's daughter, basically, Amelia under her wing to become a prima ballerina. Didi doesn't like this because she's sort of losing grip on her daughter. Her daughter really doesn't respect her, but her daughter is also doing her own thing. She wants to live her own life, become a good ballerina, and is also falling in love with a Russian named Yuri, played by Mikhail Baryshnikov. I love that name. I just love his name, Mikhail Barishnikov. But uh, yeah, trouble ensues because Didi and... Emma, just fight. There's a lot of tension between them. A lot of tension once Dee Dee decided to live a family life and not so much the ballerina life that she could have lived like Emma. Emma knows too that she's getting older in her career and Amelia is probably going to be the next her. Um, it's just a whole relationship issues. It's not a very good movie by any means of the imagination. It's, I hated it. Let's just say that I love Shirley MacLaine and Bancroft is good. I couldn't get anything out of this except for their major fight scene. Um, I lost focus of it. Anthony and I watched it on the same website, Brett. You probably did too, but we know that in the last 10 minutes it decided to buffer and I (laughs) almost threw my computer (laughs) because I just wanted to finish this damn thing. I will say the ballet stuff is really nice, I guess, you can make it like a music video pre-MTV, fine, whatever, but the rest of it, I don't care about at all. And I feel really bad because Shirley MacLaine, enough is like enough for me to love a movie, except when she's on the sidelines, peering into other people's lives, not really saying anything, not doing much. And it was nominated for so many Oscars and it didn't win any. And honestly, it should not have won anything and it should not have been nominated for anything. (laughs) And that, dear friends, is the turning point. Goodbye.
2: I I have to, I mean, mostly agree. I think at some point I stopped uh, wanting anything from the film or expecting it to be good and just like was enjoying how bad it was. Uh, Like there were certain scenes that made me laugh and this is what i wrote down because every everything else was essentially forgettable for me um except for their one the one thing i did like was when they had an intercutting conversation between um shirley mclean and uh her husband they were discussing the future of their daughter and whether she was going to be in dance the conversation like started in the bedroom and then continued in the kitchen and then went to like this part. i liked that um just from like an editing perspective but uh There was was a fair amount of kissing montages. I don't think we ever really need to see kissing montages, you know? It's like, especially if they're showing, like, basically the same thing from different angles over and over. Um, The funniest part to me is when the daughter uh, realized that she was being cheated on by the other, and she was in the doorway. And the way he just closed the door in her face was hysterical. (laughs) I love that. And then at the end where she, where her and her parents, where her parents are like consoling each other, she's in the doorway again. I'm like she's just always in doorways. Like she's just always waiting to hear information. Um, and the other, it, it, but it made no sense. Like there were, there were, the part where the daughter lost her virginity to that, uh, I think she lost her virginity, whatever, um, to, the, to the Russian dancer. She like, come home and tell her mom that. And the mom's like, do you want to talk about it? She's like, no. Well, then why did you like say anything? Like, it, there was just things like that that didn't go anywhere. That I felt like the whole movie didn't go anywhere. Um, it was, yeah, it was, it was bad. I feel, I feel weird because like all, a lot of these movies, like <laughs> three of these movies, I have no real feeling towards. And then there's two that I love. So um, The Turning Point was definitely the weakest for me, of all the films. Um, and but and I think that that's... It's not not to blame the performances necessarily. I think it's really bad writing in this film.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, we have movies that we disagree on a little bit, like Star Wars, but it seems like every year there's like one movie that we all just agree is pretty awful. And I second that with this movie. I Yeah, this one... Oh, it's it's so forgettable to me. Then there are those pieces that I can't forget. Unfortunately, um, I think my main issue with the movie is that I just I think the focus is put in the wrong places. If you have, I'll say I think Sherilyn McLean and Anne Bancroft. Maybe it's just because it's them two. I think they're good here. I mean, I think they do what they can with an awful script. But the problem is they're rarely together on screen. The, the film is designed to be like about their relationship, but it never, it does like it, they have like a couple five minute scenes together. It doesn't really explore their relationship and their friendship and give more background into that and why it turned. And I'm not saying that would have made it a great movie, but it certainly would have made it better than this focus on the daughter who's played Leslie Brown, who I believe was actually a, a ballet dancer, um, you know, and not an actress. So you can tell she's not an actress. You can tell Barishnikov is not an actress. It is unreal to me that they were both nominated for Oscars. Like, I, I'm sorry. I I don't like to completely bash performances, but they're awful. Like And, and like you said, Anthony, I, I think a large part of it is the screenplay, but I also didn't have some of the troubles I had with the other performers here like I did with them. Like, they are just... Leslie Brown, it it feels like she's reading a script sometimes, and Brish McCoff is just so wooden. Obviously, they can dance, you know, and they have that going for them. So, those scenes might save them a little bit, but I don't know. I'm always impressed by those scenes. Ballet is not really my thing. So, it doesn't interest me to see those as much as it would someone else. And the, like you said, Christian, the MTV, like song title things that appear, I, yeah. I, didn't work for me. I, at first I thought somebody added those in later. Um, and, and the copy I was watching, you know, and I was like, Oh, that's kind of weird. Um, that fight scene between McLean and Bancroft is ridiculous. Um, I can dig a good melodrama, but like I said, it does, it has no buildup and it just all of a sudden kind of happens. And gosh, I, I, I think I rated this film a little too high, by the way. I keep reflecting on it, but yeah, it's not good. It, it's rough and it's, it's dull. It's there's nothing that exciting about it either. So
1: reading the fun facts and knowing that Audrey Hepburn, wanted the Anne Bancroft role, I don't think it would, it wouldn't have made any difference, but Audrey Hepburn is a like ballerina that I'm like, Oh my God, why would they pass <sighs> her up?
0: No kidding.
1: Especially because at this point in the 1970s, she's not doing anything. She's, like, semi-retired at this point. Like, girl, she wanted it really bad. Just give it to her.
0: And it feels like with those characters, they were, like, trying to find things for them to do aside from confront each other. Like, the McLean subplot where she's, like, having an affair. I I don't care. Like, I... This feels pointless, so.
2: The dialogue was just so expositional. (laughs) Ridiculous. Like, you know from the first 20 minutes what everybody's problem with each other is and nobody's doing anything about it for the next hour and 20 minutes like it never comes to a head you know until the very 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 end where it's like okay fine then save it for the end for anything to happen but don't build it up so quickly in the beginning like it was just like they were wearing their emotions on their sleeves like that party that they had um, when the dance company was in town and Anne Bancroft was like, was sitting in the backyard of Shirley McLean, Shirley McLean was saying everything about, you know, I had a daughter and you, you didn't want me to get the part. It's just like, it was said so early that there really wasn't any other direction for the film to take. It would have been nice if it took a little bit longer to build up to that sort of, you know, that specific jealousy. You could have had the, the theme of jealousy, but it didn't have to be so on the nose.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure they mention the whole thing about McLean's character leaving dance to build a family at least 10 times in this movie. And it's like, yeah, we get we know what she did. Like, let's go a little deeper now. So. It's pretty awful. Christian, do you want to go over the ridiculous amount of nominations that this received?
1: Yes. First of all, I want to say my Golden Girls reference. They referenced Baryshnikov a bunch of times. That's it. Um, but also I want to say that Gene Siskel, of, uh, you know, Siskel and Ebert, which, by the way, there's a great podcast out now about them. Definitely y'all should listen to it. But anyway, he said, um, I just want to say this because he can be film critics can be really, really wrong. But uh, in the year when 1977 will be remembered as science fiction, special effects, it's refreshing to see a film as a turning point, which offers kind of excitement. The pleasure of following a story you can't easily anticipate. Yeah, okay. Uh, But yeah, like Brett said, 11 Oscar nominations. Whoa. Best Picture, Best Director, Two Best Actresses for Bancroft and McLean, Supporting Actress for Leslie Brown, Supporting Actor for Mikhail Baryshnikov, Original screenplay, cinematography, art direction, sound, and film editing, and winner of zero. Tying, well, at the time, being the film to not win anything, and then later on it would be tied by the color purple. That's like apples and oranges. Yeah, polar opposites.
0: That Siskel thing is funny. I was looking up to see what Roger Ebert gave it, but it doesn't look like he actually reviewed it. So, oh, good. Maybe he saw Gene liked it and was like, I'm good. So, (laughs) but all right. Any uh, final thoughts on the turning point before we move on to our best picture winner?
1: If you want great ballet movies, the red shoes and black swan, that's all you need. There you go.
0: As Christian would say, unless you're a completionist, we wouldn't recommend this one. So, all right. So we are now moving on to our best picture winner of 1977. And Anthony, you're going to take us away with this one. So go ahead with that.
2: Neurotic Jewish guilt meets Midwestern anti-Semitism in this innovative and hysterical look at the dangers of overanalyzation and relationships. Speaking of which, I can spend years in therapy trying to figure out which character I love more in this film. I'm as obsessed with this movie as Woody Allen is about death. It's all-encompassing, bitter and sweet, and comes to an end much too soon. It's Woody Allen's masterpiece, Annie Hall. Uh, I don't do as good a job as describing the plot as you guys have, as I've noticed, so I'll do the best I can here. Alvie Singer is a stand-up comedian who has uh, fallen in love with um, this uh, Midwestern woman named Annie Hall, very different from him as she is uh, uh, transplanted into the city. Um, it's about their relationship, the ups and downs, the difficulties of his neuroses and dealing with that, uh, his encouragement for her to do artistic things, but his discouragement for from her to get too far from him. Um, it's toxic a little bit and, and very real, honest, um, in a way in which sometimes I don't want to say it feels like a documentary, but there's sometimes where, uh, I don't know, there's just this grittiness to it that you don't really see in a lot of films about relationships. It's definitely not Hollywood polished over. Um, and yeah, I love this, mil- this film. I mean, Woody Allen has always been one of my top five favorite directors. Um, and this isn't, my favorite of his works i hadn't seen it in some time but watching it with fresh eyes uh i was really impressed at not only how funny it was i mean i think some of the best one-liners ever are in this movie but how sad it was like i didn't realize when i was watching it this time i was like oh my god this movie is like heartbreaking um and that's a really delicate tightrope to be walking. Um, especially for characters who like even Woody's character isn't necessarily the most sympathetic person uh, but he's flawed and uh, so is Annie and that's what's great about this film is it doesn't shy away from any of that um, the focus never gets lost I think it's like perfectly on their relationship the entire time and um, And I love, and from a filmmaking point of view, it just spices things up so much with the the scene with the subtitles where it's really what they're thinking versus what they're saying. The switches to animation, um, cross cutting between uh, conversations between her parents and his parents. There's just so much there to keep you interested. And I guess I understand what you guys are talking about when you like a film, you just ramble on. I love Annie Hall. (laughs)
0: All right, well, um, so I first saw, this is my second time seeing this, but it was my first time in like eight years. I actually, we were shown this in an intro to film class, uh, my freshman year of college. And um, it was talked about, you know, this being one of the great screenplays ever written um, and whatnot, and I, it is so interesting and the characters are fascinating. And obviously, Woody Allen is a guy that is very controversial nowadays and whatnot. And and you know, sometimes with him, it's especially hard at times to separate the the art from the artist because he does play such a big role in his movies. But if you look at it honestly and assess the film, I think it's terrific. I, I think this, there's a reason why this is has for so long been considered kind of the the quintessential great romantic comedy. Uh, and like you said, even has that some of those darker, those sad aspects. Um, Diane Keaton is absolute perfection in this role. I just cannot see anybody else playing it. After after now seeing her deliver it twice, it's it, she's so funny, uh, sweet, and you could see why Alvy Singer would fall in love with Annie Hall, and um, at times even obsess over Annie Hall. And you know, I'm. I, it, just think about the Tyler movie that, you know, we titled it Annie Hall, you know, based on her character, because she is that fascinating. There's just something about her that kind of drives home this point of the film that, you know, this is a, like you said, a relationship that could be toxic, unhealthy, but by the end, it's like, you know, they're, even though, you know, they may not end up together. Things may not go the way they wanted to. There's that person in your life. That's just irreplaceable in some ways. And I think the film really drives that point home. A lot of great lines about the movie. And I agree completely on like the filmmaking aspects. I love when he breaks the fourth wall, Um, like the scene where they're waiting in line for the movie is absolutely hilarious. Uh, The scene where they're like, yeah, going and looking at him as a child and uh, watching him with his kind of neurotic family. And um, the, uh, and it's funny, the, this scene that, always sticks with me from the first time I saw that always makes me laugh is when he's holding the, the cocaine that's $2,000 an ounce and sneezes and it goes everywhere. And it's perfect because he cuts away right after it happens. And it's like, that's perfect. You know, I, h- how do you do that better? Um, I think, you know, and Alvy Singer is obviously an interesting character. He, uh, at times can be annoying. And I think that's sort of the point. Um, some of those flaws you mentioned and and whatnot. And sometimes he just needs to chill out. There are some lines in the film that maybe hadn't aged well. There's things about like um, having a threesome with 16 year old twins and things like that, that, you know, with everything we know now, hasn't aged well, but um, like, you know, like you said, there are so many techniques, so many things in the script that work on a level and things that, that just wouldn't work in a lot of other movies, like the, near the end where they're having this kind of montage of things we've seen between him and Annie Hall In a lot of other movies that would feel overly sentimental, but I think it really works here with the voiceover and the dialogue that's provided. So it's great. I mean, it's a great movie.
1: I used to be a heroin addict. Now I'm a methadone addict. I'm into leather. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is a great script. Honestly, um, I do love this film a lot. And this was. It's. It's nice hearing you two being like, "Oh, yeah, my second time, my third time. This is my eleventh time, my eleventh known time watching this movie." Okay, I. This is my Valentine's Day movie. I watch it every Valentine's Day, and don't tell. Don't ask me where that tradition started. I have no idea. Where did that tradition I, start? I have no idea. (laughs) I just figured, oh, it's kind of a romantic movie. I'm not really a romantic type person. I should watch this because it's not also not, not romantic. I don't know. But I've always just watched it on Valentine's Day, and it's one of those movies that, oddly enough, makes me laugh, makes me feel good after watching it. Even though, like Anthony said, this time around, yes, it is a very almost sad movie. And also reading on Fun Facts, that Alvi never actually tells annie he loves her which Ooh. i never actually knew because he, he only loves says, her he i love you her. yeah he says that he never once says l-o-v-e which begs me to and i asked i told anthony this i was to ask you a question does he actually truly love her like could you see these two getting married to one another or simply were they good for one another for a while but like all things, they had to move on from each other.
0: I think it's the latter, but also there's a genuine love there. I, I feel kind of the same way I do with like something like Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is kind of a similar romantic pathway, or even like La La Land, where I think we've implied that th- this ends with them not being together, and who knows what happens after that. But I, right. yeah, for for that, I think I think there was genuine love there. But like you said, it was they were there for that time in each other's lives, basically.
2: Right. I think but so, I, too. It's like, I don't know if it's too psychological, but I don't know if the character of Ali Singer is capable of really loving anyone. Because I just feel like he's going to have a problem with something. Or like, in Annie Hall's case, it was that she wasn't as cultured, maybe as he wanted her to be. But he may find a girl who is more cultured and he may be intimidated by that. I just think that like there's always going to be something that's going to prevent him from giving his full person to someone hundred percent. So he loves her in the way that he can, which I think is temporary.
1: That's a great point. Yeah, I like that. And I mean, he he loved her enough to that this entire story is focused on her. And especially when they break up too, he goes to the whole city. I love that part too. When he goes to the whole city and all these random strangers are just like telling him like, oh, you made a mistake. Oh, well, I don't really know. I'm kind of shallow. I have no thoughts and I'm the same way. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it is it's, I think it is, for me anyway, his best film. And again, that's probably because I watch it every year. I'm super, super familiar with it. Um, like Brett said, Woody Allen is it, terribly problematic. Separating this from, I guess, his personal life, it's hard to think about it. Watch Alan V. Farrow for that. It's It's a hard topic to talk about, obviously but Annie Hall is great. And also I want to say, cause I've seen a shit ton of Woody Allen movies, watch Manhattan murder mystery. If you want Annie Hall and Albie Singer, get married and live a normal life because that it's basically a sequel to this and it's great, it's funny.
2: I don't want to, I don't want to keep talking about this film forever, but there are a couple of points still that I want to make. Gordon Willis is a cinematographer who is, you know, known for the you know, Prince of Darkness, Godfather. And he went on to direct, I think, all, I'm sorry, DP a lot more Woody Allen films, he did Manhattan. Um, his use of empty space in the frame is something that I noticed this time a lot. Like there's there, there are times where this character, the character is like, you know, all the way to the left or all the way to the right, and there's just nothing. And, and that is sort of, uh, you know, that's sort of symbolic of their relationship at the points where it's uh, where it's a little rocky. I think they're in the frame a lot more in the, this is just something I noticed. I don't know if this is true. It seems that they're in the frame together a lot more in the beginning of the film. And as the film goes on and they break up, there's conversations where one of them may be off screen and the other person is talking and there's just not, there's just like this deadness. said t- I noticed that this time. And um, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's my favorite first 10 minutes of a film i've ever seen um the way it starts it just grabs you with the monologue and he talks about growing up in brooklyn and everything like i'm into the rest of the film 100 but i think the first 10 minutes like my favorite opening to a a a comedy film at least because you're i I think i'm laughing already you know yeah i love the opening uh,
1: oh go ahead Oh, I was going to say about the negative space that you're talking about. There's that one scene, too, where he's talking with Max. And they're at the very end of the block. And for the longest time, you do not see where they're coming from. You don't see them at all. You're like, well, who's talking? And slowly, 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 they're walking up, still talking. It's like, oh, this is kind of an interesting way to film this.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's like you would think that's like just lazy. You know? Right. But it's not. It works in that film. And they don't use that all the time. But when they do... I don't know. It feels like there's a reason for it, and there must be. Obviously, I mean, these are extremely talented. There's most talented people in the industry at that time. They have a reason for it, even if I'm not necessarily picking up on what that is.
0: <laughs> I think some of it plays into, especially like a scene like that. The one of the conflicts of the movie, especially between Alvy and Annie, and that he is a New York guy, and for a while she's an an LA girl, and that creates a big rift between them. And so, I, obviously. You know, Woody Allen has set a lot of his movies um, in New York and that's definitely a, a major piece of his movies for him in location. But um, you mentioned the beginning. I, I love the beginning, but also the the ending scene and the way it's shot as if we're kind of watching from a window and uh, the final monologue line of the movie um, is one of my favorite final lines I think that I can think of. Um, when I watched this in in college that was one of the things like the instructor told us that you know that the, the ending line rings so true and so it, it grabs you in from the beginning and it sticks with you after you stopped watching uh, because of those things coming together
2: so and how many people are in this movie it's like oh wow look it's Paul Simon oh my god it's a young Jeff Goldblum it's like this is like constantly young people and
1: up. the most amazing one of them all is Sigourney Weaver but she is so, like, you cannot even tell it is her. No, Anthony's giving me a face right now. When?
0: Where's at the show? Very,
1: at the very end of this movie, when Alvy and Annie see each other again outside of a theater with their respective dates, his date is Sigourney Weaver.
2: Wow.
1: But the scene is shot from like a block away that you yeah. see basically them shaking hands and the dates, you don't see faces. That is Sigourney Weaver. Wow. Yeah.
0: So you got her, you got Shelley Duvall, obviously a short role and, and Carol Kane, not like almost she's recognizable, but especially when she starts talking, it's like, Oh yeah, there's Carol Kane. And uh, even Christopher Walken, I completely forgot he was in this movie.
1: And so that was kind of nice too. And Truman Capote is in this movie.
2: <laughs> yeah, the, one of my favorite lines in the movie. Yeah.
1: Wait, Brett, you just gave me a look. Did you not no, know? That no, no. They literally say, "Look, that man won the Truman Capote look-alike contest. That's Truman Capote."
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes, I'm glad you told me that. I would. Yeah, I didn't know what Truman Capote looked like. So,
1: aside also, from the, Philip
0: Seymour Hoffman, so.
1: <laughs> the whole Marshall McLuhan thing. It's like, that's such a niche joke, but I hate the fact I understand what it all means because I took a film theory class. I was forced to take it with a professor that Brett and I do not really care for. Mm. And I know who Marshall McLuhan is and I hate it so much. I hate (laughs) that I know and I understand that whole scene.
2: I like when it's, you know, well, then what's your idea of a good time and it just cuts to the sorrow and the pity again? It's like everything's a sorrow and the pity. (laughs) And um. The last thing I'll geek about is I think like the most charming part of the film is when they're after Annie has performed in the nightclub and the audience wasn't you know really paying attention. They're walking down the street and he's like, "Well, why don't we just kiss now? Because you know what, we're going to go out to dinner. It's going to be awkward. It's gonna be, why don't we just kiss now and get it over with?" Those are little things that like I feel like only Woody Allen has these sorts of things in his movies. Like, I know he's a problematic character. I know I know that, and, and I'm not trying to put that down, but that's probably one of the most charming scenes I've ever seen in a film. Because you're like, yeah, why don't we just do that? It's these ways that he looks at the world just a little bit differently that makes total sense through his eyes. And then in retrospect, you're like, wow, okay, this guy is uh, you know, right. very problematic. But in, in, in the film, I think it works, and there's a reason why. It's obviously considered one of the greatest romantic comedies of all time.
0: Yeah and an interesting best picture choice. I mean like we mentioned not many comedies win best picture. And of course th- this film is you know has a lot of other you know genre aspects to it but um, going against a, a juggernaut like Star Wars and two other films that had 11 nominations and this had five pretty interesting best picture win. Um, that I don't think the Academy, um, maybe nowadays more so, but um, didn't always gravitate towards. So, Uh, Anthony, do you want to go over what this did win and nominations?
2: Sure thing. Uh, There's four Oscar wins for this film. Best Picture, Best Director for Woody Allen, uh, Best Actress, Diane Keaton, and Original Screenplay, All Deserving. Uh, One additional nomination for Actor, and that's Woody Allen.
0: Yeah, and one final note from me, um, Diane Keaton, and I still have a lot more movies to see, but as of right now, I would say the two best performances of 1977 between this and Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Uh, Shocking film, but read up on it first and then see if you want to check that one out if you can find it, because she's great in that movie too. Awesome. Any final thoughts on Annie Hall before we move on to our rankings here?
1: It's on Amazon.
0: Very nice.
1: Awesome. I don't know. It, I, it's a good movie. I obviously, you know, if you have issues with watching a Woody Allen movie, okay. If you don't, it's on Amazon, and it's yeah. short. It's like ninety-three minutes. Yeah, it's short. on Amazon now.
2: Who knows where it'll be in the future?
1: Yeah,
0: true. Um, perfect. So we'll go ahead and jump into our rankings here. We'll go up from five to one. These best picture nominees. I'll go ahead and start us off. My number five shocker is The Turning Point. Uh, really the only film that I dislike from this lineup. Number four, I have the goodbye girl. I apologize. Number three, I have Julia. Number two, Annie Hall. And number one, very close, but I went with Star Wars.
2: Anthony, do you want to take us away with yours? Sure. Number five, no surprise, the turning point. Number four, Julia. Here's where everybody else, and I differ. Number three, Star Wars. Number two, The Goodbye Girl. And number one, The Greatest, Annie Hall.
1: Okay. Uh, number five, The Turning Point. Number four, Julia. Number three, The Goodbye Girl. Number two, Annie Hall. And number one, Star Wars. Although I will say this is one of those years where I don't think they got it too wrong, because I do love Annie Hall. It's just that in my personal feelings star wars being such like a land land mon, whether monumental thing it would have been such a big thing you know
0: two very influential films i right. you know i i mean even with stuff about ally i think everybody can agree annie hall is a very influential movie so as a star wars obviously so uh so our overall ranking by toby um who goes through and looks at ours and kind of ranks these overall uh, we did have a tie-in of these, so technically number four is, of course, the turning point. Uh, next up is Julia. Coming as our runner-up is the Goodbye Girl. and We actually had a tie in first place between Annie Hall and Star Wars, which I think just completely echoes everything you just said, Christian. So, um, Not a year where, where the Academy necessarily got it wrong. Uh, m- maybe in t- 2021, that would look a little different, but um 1977 two really great films going for that top prize one of them won a lot of technical awards um the other one swooped in and took best picture along with some others as well so thank you all uh for listening to this first part of our episode on 1977 of course we will be back anthony will join us again as we talk about six more movies from this year Um, each picked out two. And we'll go over those, talk about honorable mentions, and of course, dive into our personal awards. And so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Um, As always, rate, review, subscribe on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen, or pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. Um, And check us out on all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd. And Anthony, thanks once again for joining us and looking forward to having you back on for the next episode. Is there anything that you want to plug or any final thoughts you have today?
2: nothing yet hopefully for the second episode there'll be some some things to plug that i'm working on but uh as always thank you for having me and it's
1: been a blast
0: perfect christian any final thoughts from you any plugs for you
1: that's it no um find me on letterbox absolutely because i like likes and i'm trying to write a review for every movie i watch this month and it's hard because the most i do is like a sentence but whatever i try to be witty
0: Yeah, I always end up like five films behind and adding them like a week later. So, but yeah, um, follow Christian, check us out there. Thanks once again for listening and be sure to tune in next time.
1: Adios.